You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you would please stand for the reading, our New Testament reading this morning. Our New Testament reading is going to be uh, from the letter to the, our first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7. Um, we're going to be beginning at the first verse. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then coming together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The word of the Lord. Oh, gracious God, we believe that your word is inspired. We believe your word is profitable. We believe that you use it to teach us, you correct us, you train us in righteousness all through your word. This morning, Lord, we yield our hearts, we yield our minds to you and ask that you would shape us, that you would mold us, that you would transform us into your image by your spirit through the proclamation of your word. We ask this in Christ's holy name, amen, amen. Well, my friends, after commuting back and forth to Reading every workday for 14 long years, I was relieved when I began working here at Harvest because, you see, the church is only four miles away from my home, and the commute takes me over the river and through the woods, not to Grandma's house, but here to my office and I get to commute through some beautiful countryside where I have never, where I have never, ever experienced a traffic jam. I'm sorry to say that for those of you who go on 422. The only problem that I've ever had to contend with has been sliding down that steep hill in a snowstorm 
that hill that is adjacent to the church, and although, well, although I have come very close, I thank God that I have never ended up in one of the two ditches that run alongside of Colbrookdale Road. Now, with that image in mind, as we travel along this pilgrim's path, making our journey to the celestial city, we must be careful to avoid the two ditches, those dangerous gullies that lie on either side of the pathway, our journey to glory. On one side, there is a ditch that is called the Ditch of the Libertines, and I will explain where many of those who confess Christ use their Christian liberty as a license to indulge their flesh. Now, let me explain. A libertine is a person who rejects moral boundaries and lives at liberty with very, very few ethical constraints. Well, on the other side of the road... There is the ditch of asceticism where individuals who are known as ascetics practice strict self-denial as a means of attaining what they believe is a, a higher spiritual plane. Now, in the church at Corinth, it seems that there were many who proclaimed themselves to be believers who had drifted off of the path and were bogged down in one of either of these two ditches on the side of the road. There was the libertines on this side and there were the ascetics on the other side. Now, you may remember from last week's study in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, that Paul quoted a contemporary Corinthian slogan which said this. It said, All things are lawful for me. Now, some individuals in the church at Corinth were holding on to the erroneous Greek philosophy that promoted a radical separation between the outer body of a man and the inner soul of a man. Well, consequently, they were convinced, absolutely convinced, that their Bodily behavior had nothing, nothing to do with the eternal consequences that they might face upon death. So they continued. They continued to practice immorality as they slid off into the ditch of the libertines. Well, this morning, as we turn the page and go into chapter 7, we cross the road, so to speak, and we gaze into the ditch of asceticism. Contrary to the libertines who freely gave themselves to immorality, Paul now confronts a hyper-spiritual group of Corinthians who sought to demonstrate their ascended spirituality by avoiding all sexual contact, even, get this, even with their own spouses. Well, my friends, as many of you may know, the Roman world into which Paul carried the life-changing gospel, was just as confused and just as conflicted about marriage and about sexuality as the world in which we live today. Roman society tolerated, even encouraged fornication, adultery, 
homosexuality, polygamy, and prostitution. Under Roman law, there were actually four kinds of marriages, and they practiced divorce. And that divorce was rampant all throughout the Roman Empire. Some people, as I read this week, were married 20 times. 20 times. Well, Nero, also in the history of the Roman Empire, Nero dressed up like a bride when he married one of his slaves. And in another marriage, he had a young man surgically altered before he was able to marry him. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9, there really is nothing new under the sun, is there? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul explains God's standard for marriage. He explains God's standard for singleness and divorce. And because his words are divinely inspired, they are profitable for teaching for reproof, for training in righteousness so that we, all of us who believe, might be equipped for every good work. Now, our outline for this morning will follow these three points. They're not easy, but let's follow along. First, there is disclosing error. Second, dutiful engagement. And finally, distinguishing endowments. The D&E are for their for us to remember. But disclosing error, we'll see that Paul uncovers the error of asceticism. The dutiful engagement here, Paul will address husbands and wives about their moral responsibility to keep one another pure. And then in distinguishing endowments, he's going to speak about singleness and marriage and how both of them are gifts from God. There's a lot of practical things that we'll deal with here, especially if you're married this morning. Well, let's look at the opening words of chapter 7. And as we look at them, let's realize that we're moving into a, a whole new portion, a whole new subdivision of Paul's epistle. You see, in the first six chapters, Paul was writing in response to certain reports that he had received regarding the, well, the fleshly divisions. You'll remember that. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Those fleshly divisions and the immoral practices that were taking place in the church at Corinth. But now, beginning with verse 7 and running all the way through chapter 11, well, chapter 7 to chapter 11, Paul addresses a series of questions, specific concerns that were brought to his attention in a letter that came from the church at Corinth. So what Paul's doing here is he's answering questions that were sent to him in the form of a letter. We see that in verse 1, where Paul says, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. These words give us entrance into a new, a new section of the, of the book. And friends, I want you to look at the text on the screen. And I want you to notice how the second phrase in verse 1 is enclosed in quotation marks. The editors of the ESV rightly portray this statement as a direct quote from the letter that was sent to Paul from the Corinthians. And these people are quoted as saying this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was a statement that came in the letter that was addressed to the apostle Paul. 
Now, traditionally, many in the church, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, believed that in this text, Paul was exalting the life of celibacy. And he exalted it as the highest and greatest life for those who were, well, for those who were truly spiritual. If you really want to be spiritual, you have to live a life of celibacy. Is that what Paul is saying here? My friends, I believe that the larger context of Paul's writing rules out that interpretation. As a faithful Jew and an Old Testament scholar, Paul knew very well that the union of a man and a woman in marriage was a significant part of God's original plan for mankind. After all, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, Moses wrote and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The intimate one flesh union of a husband and wife is necessary and God-given. It is blessed in order that we might obey the divine commandment that God gave in Genesis 1.28 where he said this to Adam and Eve. What did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, from our own study of the Bible, we understand that God designed marriage to provide man with many, many blessings. Some of those blessings are the blessing of partnership. The blessing of partnership. We see that in Genesis 2.18. The blessing of, of, of pleasure. We see that in Hebrews 13.4. And we also understand that Marriage is a picture, an image, if you will, of Christ's union with his bride, the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. And as we saw in Genesis 1.28, God designed marriage for procreation. So, where would the Corinthians come up with this idea that it is not good for a man to touch or to engage in intimacy with a woman? Well, in my studies... You know I love reading Gordon Fee. Well, Gordon Fee said this. He said, the Apostle Paul, quote, is just another expression of Corinthian hyper-spirituality and their negative view of the material world, their elevation of the human soul, and their disdain for the physical body. This is the philosophy that, that was rampant in the Greek world at that time. So it seems that some believers in Corinth were under the mistaken impression that they had already entered into the new age that Jesus referred to. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, study it with Andrew. You read in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, Jesus said, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So the Corinthians would understand this and say, well, if we really want to be spiritual, then let's live like the angels, whereas though male or female, let's set aside those, those, those intimate details between husband and wife, and let's live like angels. After all, when we get to speaking in tongues, they say some of you speak in the tongues of angels and men. 
Well, this is a hyper-spirituality that Paul is trying to set aside to crush. Some of the Corinthians thought that they were living in the new age of of the spirit. So they promoted an ascetic view of marriage. They thought that it was much more spiritual, much more godly to suppress the natural appetites of the flesh even, well, even within the context of marriage. But Paul refutes the Corinthians' hyper-spiritual asceticism and he gives them a strong warning that is followed by three sets of directives that are specifically aimed at married couples. So if you're married here this morning, let's consider these three sets of directives. As you can see in verse 2, it begins with the word, but. But. What Paul is saying here is in direct opposition to that foolish statement that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, I would remind you of the corrupt, depraved, perverse society that surrounds the church. He said, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Paul's point is actually very simple. It's actually very straightforward. Since immorality is such a pervasive problem in Corinth and in Boyertown, and because there is such a strong temptation from the world to yield to its corrupt pagan practices, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, that may sound... That may sound like a promotion or like an advertisement for marriage. But let's think about it. Is Paul merely saying, because we live in such a perverted world, everyone needs to have a spouse? Is that what he's saying? Well, I would certainly agree with the statement. I think it is a good thing to have a spouse. I think there is much more to Paul's instruction, however, than merely, hey, just get married. That's not what he's saying here. In this particular context, Paul is speaking to those who had fallen into that ditch of asceticism. And what is he saying? He's saying he's giving them instructions. He's instructing specifically married couples who are abstaining from marital intimacy. And he's saying to them, each one of you should have your wife and have your husband. Each one of you should get busy. Why? Why? Well, those who are married should utilize God's gift of sex as a means of avoiding immorality. Husbands are to have their own wives in a biblical manner. Wives are to have their own husbands as a biblical manner. And it has been... There have been times in our own study of the Bible that have led us to consider the wonder and the majesty of of God's manifold perfections. We've contemplated the beauty of God's holiness, the heights and depth and breadth of his tremendous love. But then, friends, there are other times when the words of the apostles and prophets, well, when they invade the most intimate areas of our lives with practical teachings that are designed 
Well, they're designed to bring joy. They're designed to guard our holiness, designed to bring great blessing into our lives, and this is one of those cases. Some of these things may be difficult to hear. How would you like to stand where I am and speak them? Yeah, some of them may be difficult to hear. But these scripture verses that we're contemplating are designed by God to bring joy, to bring blessing and fulfillment into our lives. In his commentary, Kim uh, Riddlebarger writes this. He said, because sexual temptation is so great... Married couples must not heed this wrong-headed advice and abstain from sexual relations, since doing so only increases the temptation toward marital infidelity. Rather, it is the biblical duty of husbands and wives to enjoy the marital relationship. And with this particular explanation we move from disclosing the error of asceticism to a marital partner's dutiful engagement. Dutiful engagement. In verse 3, Paul writes, and he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. While Paul's instructions still raise eyebrows in the church today, in the first century, these commands would have been even more shocking than they are today. You see, in a society that was dominated by men, when it comes to marital intimacy, Paul recognizes that both husbands and wives have individual needs which must be met on an equal basis by their spouse. For him to say that a wife has authority over a husband's body, that was absolutely radical in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, The wording that Paul uses here implies that married couples are indebted. Married couples are obligated to regularly meet one another's physical needs. And Paul speaks here of intimacy as a duty, as a duty. Now, I realize that that's not necessarily the most romantic way to speak about marital intimacy. But we need to keep in mind that 1 Corinthians 7 is Well, it's only one chapter. It's only one chapter in the Bible that addresses marriage. There are many, many other places where Paul will address marriage, where where Solomon, which we read today in Song of Solomon, where he addresses marital intimacy in in a most beautiful and poetic manner. We pull all of these things together and realize that this morning we're only dealing with one small portion of Scripture. In this chapter, Paul is specifically addressing a situation where husbands and wives were depriving one another of their physical needs under the erroneous facade of ascended spirituality. So we keep all of this in context when we study what is Paul saying here. Well, in verse 5, Paul commands them. He said, do not deprive one another. Literally, what Paul is saying here is stop 
depriving one another. It is a command that he's given. Stop depriving one another. Stop defrauding your spouse of that which rightly belongs to them. Here Paul views this form of asceticism as stealing, as defrauding something of very great value from your spouse. And friends, after 43 years of marriage, I understand that there are things that interfere with. There are things that hinder. There are things that disrupt marital intimacy from time to time. After all, there are times when we encounter sickness. There are children, children who need our attention, children who knock at our door. At times, we are just physically exhausted. We experience relational strife from time to time. You see, there are numerous things in the normal course of life that tend to hinder our expression of marital love. Those who are remarried, if you're on your second time around, there are times where we really need to work through the baggage of past relationships. Others will need to confess their sin from time to time and express heartfelt repentance before meaningful marital intimacy can be restored to the relationship. Nevertheless, all these things need to be overcome in a Christian marriage so that husbands and wives can obey the Scripture and come together again. Because we live in such a grossly immoral society and God designed the marital union as a guard, as, a, as something that will protect our hearts and guard our bodies and guard our lives in holiness. In verse 5, Paul tells us that there are times when abstinence from the physical union in marriage is permissible. But he instructs the Corinthians that that abstinence must be entered into by mutual consent and only for a brief period of time and specifically for the purpose of prayer. Let's read that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, Paul says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. Paul's saying this is a concession, but listen to me. Understand. Understand that. There is a time, there may be a time, when it's okay to set that aside, but only for a brief period of time. In all of his communication, Paul keeps in mind the powerful temptations that are prevalent in the immoral society that surrounds us. As Christians, we shouldn't bury our heads in the sand and think that, oh, the world is okay. Well, there are, right, we have an enemy who is, what did Paul say? A roaring lion who seeks to destroy us. How does he do that? Just look around you at all the temptations, all the things that come into our lives, flooding into our lives from the hand of the enemy. Paul understands the frailty of our flesh. He understands how easily we can be derailed by the lust of our eyes, by the lust of our flesh. So, So when he makes a concession for abstinence, he says it is limited in purpose, limited in duration, 
and it must be by mutual consent. Let's recap. In verses 1 and 2, Paul discloses the error of asceticism that brought confusion into the church at Corinth. In verses 3 through 6, Paul clearly communicated the duty of husbands and wives to meet one another's physical needs, and by doing so, they would effectively guard one another from the rampant depravity and immorality that surrounded them in Corinth. And now, in verses 7 to 9, Paul having destroyed the false ascetic view or belief that celibacy is more spiritual than marriage, he goes on to explain. He taught the Corinthians that singleness and marriage are both gifts from God, and individuals should seek to glorify God in whatever state they find themselves because spirituality is not determined by one's marital status. So whoever you are today, understand that the situation that you find yourself, if you are married, it is a gift from God. If you are single, it is a gift from God. Understand that and live in it. In verse 7, Paul said, he said, I wish that all were as I am. I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Well, here Paul uses his own life as an example of one who has been uniquely gifted by God to live a celibate life in service for the Lord. Let's take another step back into the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees put Jesus to the test with a question concerning marriage and divorce. And as always... Jesus' answer was full of wisdom and in perfect harmony with the revealed word of God is given to us in Holy Scripture. Now, after hearing his answers, the Pharisees continued on. They continued this debate, and in verse 7 of Matthew 19, they said this, Then why why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. While Jesus' disciples were there, they were hearing this. They listened. They immediately were prompted, and they said this in verse 10. The disciples are responding to Jesus' words. They said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Do you see the connection here? Matthew 19, the disciples said the same thing that the Corinthians were saying. If this is the case, then it's better if we don't get married. Well, and Jesus responded with the same reasoning that Paul responded. He said, to the celibate life, that's just not for everyone. It's only for those individuals who are endowed with that gift from God. In verse 12, Jesus went on to explain. Now, here, you're going to hear this word eunuch a lot. Eunuch is one who is not 
involved in or cannot be involved in sexual relations. Jesus said this. He said, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying there are some people who are born naturally without a sexual drive. There are others who by the cruelty of men, like, well, like the prophet Daniel, were forced into a life of celibacy. And there are still others who choose to live a celibate life in order to devote all of their strength, all of their energy, and all of their loyalty to the spread of the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul seems to fall into that third category. Most scholars that I read this week believe that the Apostle Paul was actually married at one point in his life, but that the But at that time, at the time of his writing here, he was either a widower or he was divorced. Where did they come up with that? Well, according to the Mishnah, well, the Mishnah, the Jewish men were to be married at the age of 18, and they were to go on to have large families. And then in Acts chapter 26, verse 10, reflecting on the time when Paul was persecuting the church, He speaks of casting his vote to put believers to death. Casting his vote to put believers to death. Now, some say that this means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Or others say that he had great influence over the Sanhedrin, which in either case would have meant that Paul must have been married at that time when he was casting a vote. Now, although it is possible that Mrs. Paul deserted her husband... After his conversion, it is likely, likely that she died before Paul began his missionary work. In any case, in any case, at this point in his life, we know that Paul was living a celibate life, giving all of his energy to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across the Mediterranean region. Now, friends, I believe that Paul is uniquely qualified as an apostle of Jesus Christ, to give these instructions to the church at Corinth and also to us in 2023. In verse 8, he said, to the unmarried and to the widows, and that word widows here is actually widowers, it is male in gender, I say this, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul repeats this same wise counsel in verse 36 when he writes this. He says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and and, and it has to be, Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not. It is no sin. So what is he saying here? He says, if you are engaged to be married, you cannot control your passions. You should just get married. Couples have come to me from time to time. said, did not the scripture say it's better to marry than to burn? Yes. Go home and talk to your parents. (laughs) We're engaged. Yes. 
Paul is right. So it's not a sin to move your wedding date forward, but it is a sin to commit fornication. So move that day. Move that day, Paul is saying. Now, friends, there are many things that we could take home from this very practical portion of Scripture, this very embarrassing portion of Scripture. And because marital intimacy is literally a debt, Paul says, that each partner owes to the other, it should never be used as a bribe or as a reward for good behavior. I've counseled couples who did that. Nor should intimacy be withheld as a threat or punishment by one's spouse. Any kind of withholding, as we've read, must be mutual for a short time and then come back together again because we have an enemy who wants to destroy us. In addition to that, we have to understand that husbands and wives alike need to be sensitive to the emotional and physical needs of their partner and not make harsh demands of one another, but rather to serve one another in love for the glory of God. Now, Paul's words don't give one spouse a right to be manipulative. They don't give anybody a right to be demanding or overbearing when it comes to their intimacy. In closing, in closing, I have to say that there are very few Christians today who advocate total abstinence from sex as a mean of attaining a higher level of spiritual maturity. There may be a few legalists around, but I don't believe that there are many ascetics at all except for the Roman Catholic Church. On the contrary, on the contrary, the church today has much more in common with the immoral, hedonistic wing of the Corinthian church that was described for us last week in chapter 6. And with that in mind, in light of the sheer bombardment of immorality that pervades our society, husbands and wives should heed the word of God and use the God-given gift of marital intimacy as a means of protecting one another from temptation. Now listen, I realize that a sermon like this has the potential to inspire many, many deep and difficult conversations between husbands and wives. You're going to go home from this, and sooner or later you're going to talk about this because it is involved in every married couple's life. I would encourage you to have those difficult conversations. And if your open communication uncovers sin in someone's life, in your life, in the spouse's life, then I would urge you to repent of your sin and be reconciled to God and also to one another. And if you need help holding those conversations, if you need help guiding those conversations, if you need assistance in achieving reconciliation as you're conversing together, let the elders of the church be a help to you 
Let them come alongside of you and help you as you work through these difficult details. So whether you are single, whether you are engaged, whether you're newly married or celebrating your 50th wedding anniversary, the Word of God provides instructions. It provides inspiration to help you live a joyful, fulfilled, and Christ-honoring life together as husband and wife. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I ask, oh, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to live by the precepts that you've given to us in your word. Oh, gracious God, we need you to guard our hearts. We need you to guard our minds. We need you to guard our marriages from the deception of the wicked one who seeks to devour. Oh, gracious God, we lay our lives before you as a living sacrifice this day. Help us to apply your word to our lives individually by the wisdom of your spirit that we might live in a way that honors you. You are the one who said that the marriage bed is undefiled. Oh, Lord, help us to see your truth as you give it to us by your word and let us, oh, Lord, be released into the joy and freedom that are ours in Christ Jesus. Let us live a holy life that is pleasing to you so that you may be glorified and your gospel may go forward. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.